Uh, This is the word of the Lord. We're going to start with Isaiah uh, chapter 1, verse 1. The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amoz, saw during the reigns of Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. We're going to move to Isaiah chapter 1, verses 10 through 20. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams, and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me, new moons, sabbaths, and convocations. I cannot bear your evil assemblies, your new moon feasts, and your appointed festivals. I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice, encourage the oppressed, defend the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the best from the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And we're going to move to... Luke chapter 12, verses 32 through 40. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Be dressed ready for service and keep your lamps burning like servants waiting for their master to return for a wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself to serve, will have them recline at the table and will come and wait on them. It will be good for those servants who master, whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the middle of the night or toward daybreak. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at the, an hour when you do not expect him. Moving to Hebrews 11, 1 through 3. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see, for this is what the ancients were commanded for. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. Hebrews 11, 8 through 16. By faith Abraham, who, by faith Abraham, when called to go a place, he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with the foundations, whose architect and builder is God. 
And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand in the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of their country, they had left, they would have had the opportunity to return. Instead, they were looking for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. This is the word of the Lord. As Rich mentioned, we're doing a summer series uh, from lectionary texts. Uh, one of the hopes in doing a lectionary uh, text-based series is that the Word of God comes to us and then we have to dig into it and respond, and we're not really sure what that's going to do for us. Um, that's really exciting, except for when you have to preach. <clears throat> so just a little backstory. Late June, Andrew called me and asked if I'd be willing to take one of these Texts in August, which sounded like a far way off. And uh, I talked to Kendrick, and our calendar was clear. And I checked my work calendar, and it was clear. And I thought we were good to go until about two weeks ago when I started reading uh, and actually found so much in these texts, I really wasn't quite sure what to do. So it took a second and a third reading to get down to oh my gosh, this is all talking about faith, which actually led me to the thought that that's a really great sermon for somebody to preach other than me because I wasn't feeling particularly faithful at the moment and I wasn't feeling this thing of faith and so uh, I took a walk and I took a walk and I had a talk with God. And I explained carefully to God that you know this was not really my thing right now. There needs to be something else, maybe a talking donkey, something that would come along and present this, this topic for him. Uh, better than I could do. And I walked about a mile, and I didn't hear anything in her back. And it was sort of like the kid whose mother comes and tells them to pick up the toys, and the kid explains carefully why the toys need to stay exactly where they are, and the mom just sort of stands there. And the kid, after some period of time, realizes that there's no option but to pick up the toys. And so, <clears throat> here I am, and my answer was clear. Um, my feelings of lack of faith, uh, were God's response to that was put the time and energy into preparing a sermon on faith. And so here I am uh, with somewhat of a confession this morning, a confession I've already made to God, and I'm going to invite you all to participate in that with me as we go through this text, because all of us struggle when it comes to faith. And uh, I hope that as we go through this, you realize and hear that this is my journey as much as it's your journey uh, this morning. So I called my sermon, because it's summertime, a triple dip of faith. And we look at the faith through these three lenses, faith as abandonment, faith as abundance, and faith as alertness. 
faith as abandonment. So, in Luke 12, which was read very nicely for us, uh, Jesus declares boldly, Don't be afraid, little flock, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourself that will not wear out, treasure in heaven that will never fail. Where no thief comes near or no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. I don't know about you, but when somebody tells me not to be afraid, that's about when I start to worry. Jesus here knows what he's going to say is kind of scary. But he means it to be an invitation to freedom. What he describes here is living with abandon. There's no sense to what he describes. The selling of all of our possessions and giving it to the poor just isn't logical. It's expressive. It's running with scissors. It's naked and unashamed. He's saying that everything we know about proper and polite living is wrong. We spend a lot of energy keeping things tidy and in order. We plan carefully so that we'll never have a need that we can't meet. He also knows that this is because we lived life generally in fear. So he says, don't be afraid. Step out. Delight in doing good things. But I'm afraid. All kinds of questions race through my brain. Have I saved enough for retirement? Will the kids turn out okay? Will my parents live much longer? And when they go, am I up to the task? Is my career choice a good one? If not, where will I find my next job? Do I give Kendrick all that she needs? And what happens if I don't? And as my attention turns to the kingdom and, God, and what God calls me to do as his servant, I wonder, am I up to that task? Do I even know what that task is? Are my hopes and ideals for a righteous and just life well-founded, or am I doomed to fail? All of these and many more questions come there from a place of fear. This fear has ruled all of humanity from, since the fall. We see this underlying in the story of Isaiah, that Isaiah uh, passage that we read. At that time in Israel, there was constant pressure from outside forces. To the north, the Assyrian Empire was growing and taking over uh, more and more territory. To the south, Egypt was the historical power. Both of these empires had influence in Israel and in the many smaller kingdoms around it. So there can be no mistaking it was a tough job to be a king in Israel in those days. Many kings turned to any god they could find to seek power and protection. They sought to build arms and alliances with one of these two superpowers, and God was very displeased with that behavior. But what's interesting to me about the Isaiah passage that we have today is that of the four kings listed, three were rulers that were noted when you look at kings or, or uh, the chronicles, they were noted as ones who followed God's law and their father David. David. They got rid of the idols, and they tried to keep the law. Yet this wasn't enough for God. God calls them rebellious in Sodom and Gomorrah, the biblical standard for rebellious and sinful lives. Rather than God's demand, which we see in verses 16 and 17 in Isaiah, so God's demand is this. Wash yourselves and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight and stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. 
Take up the cause of the fatherless and plead the case of the widow. That's the standard that God was looking for. And this is mostly directed at good kings. Connecting back to fear, I think this is what's going on. The good kings checked the box with God. They cleaned up the idols and supported sacrifices in the temple so that God could give them what they wanted. But they stopped there. Why? Because they were consumed with fear that they would be overtaken by the politically powerful kingdoms to the north and the south. They feared that if they didn't pay attention to that ball all the time, they would, they would be squashed. This fear meant that there was no energy for kindness, for tenderness to the poor, for widows and orphans, things that God was calling them to do. Now that problem sounds familiar. Fear is the opposite of abandoning ourselves to live by faith, as Jesus describes it. I know I long for freedom and complete abandon. Yet I, even more, I feel the need to be completely confident and in control. So what do I do? Well, I escape the trap of fear by numbing myself with activities that give me a false sense of control. These, for me, these include fiddling around with my computer devices, watching those on shows on Netflix or Prime or Hulu, or playing computer games where I get to control the action. In the end, these are not faithful abandonment. Instead, they're simply distractions for a moment, and I fear, uh, for, from what I fear, I cannot do or be. Jesus' vision is quite different. Rather than locked in a house, hiding under a bed, trying to get control, he describes a world in where we can run like children through the fields. Sell it all. It's of no use. He says, and I think with a straight face, give to those in need because they need it more than you. To be clear, I don't think he's asking us to focus all of our gaze on the poor. I think he's asking us to look full into the kingdom and realize that we have all that we need. Hanging on to these other things is just keeping us from understanding God in full. The model here is Abraham from our Genesis passage. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Don't be afraid, Abram. Oh, sounds familiar. I am your shield and your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, you've given me no children, so a servant's going to inherit my household. Then the word of the Lord came to him, this man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. And he took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars. Indeed, if you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness, this exchange reaffirms Abraham's choice to abandon all that he had in the land of Ur and to go off to follow God's call. That's the type of response that God wants. That is belief, even when it's accompanied by doubt. Okay, God, you said go, so I'm a going. There's a lot of good news here. First, this falls right in the middle of Abraham's story. Yet God demonstrates care in moving Abraham into his faith. That's a tremendous relief for me. I know I'm not done yet. My story is still unfolding. So my lack of faith in certain moments 
isn't met with condemnation, but with care. Again, it's like a parent encouraging a child to take the first steps full of hope for what happens when that child can run. Second, Abraham has often been called the father of faith, but we know he isn't perfect. In the next few chapters of his story, Sarah and Hagar, that whole episode unfolds. I'm pretty sure that Abraham felt like he'd screwed up much of these things. But we look back and know that this is the heritage in which we live. So our flaws are not the end of the story. In fact, they lead to stories that may lead others to see God's work. Finally, for those of us who like to dream big, God is clearly in that category. The whole star thing is a rather big picture. The invitation stands for us to throw off all the petty addictions that, and distractions and run with abandon into the kingdom. That's abandoned faith. Faith as abandonment. Faith as abundance. Related to this abandonment is the idea that abundance is where we, where we should be, but we most often live in a world where we feel like there's scarcity. Look again at Jesus' statement. Don't be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. He isn't saying armor up and be strong so that you're not afraid. He's not saying try harder. He says we have nothing to fear because God has given us the kingdom. There's nothing more. This is everything that God has and everything that is. Many days we live just in an opposite reality. Rather than knowing that God has everything at his disposal and God is willing to use that for our interests, we live like grace is just a little bit of something, and if we're not careful, we may lose it. We need to reorient ourselves. Look again at the example of Abraham as told in the lectionary reading from Hebrews. By faith... Abraham, when called to go to the place where he would later receive his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land. Like a stranger in a foreign country, he lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him in the same promise. For he was looking forward to a city with foundations whose architect and builder was God. The writer of Hebrews makes it clear. Abraham's faith was found in his seeing God's abundance in his kingdom. This is the realization that enables us to run free. Again, Jesus isn't telling us to look around and because there is so little available, give what we can share to the poor. He's saying, give out of the abundance of the kingdom. It's when our hearts and minds have embraced the abundance of God's love that we can be free to give ourselves away. Look at how the message translation expresses from Psalm 33 today. Watch this. God's eye is on on those who respect him, the ones who are looking for his love. He's ready to come to their rescue in bad times. In lean times, he will keep body and soul together. We are depending on God. He's everything we need. What's more, our hearts brim with joy since we've taken for our own his holy name. Love us, God, with all you've got, 
That's what we're depending on. This is a picture of how we are to live our lives. God does not want us to keep close depend does want us to keep close independence in his goodness and for our very existence. But here's the rub. It doesn't make things simple. In fact, it doesn't make things easy. Nowhere in scripture does saying does scripture say relying on God's abundance will take away the struggles of life. This past winter I took a new job. I moved from a big company to a small company. I've worked in small companies before, so I thought I knew mostly what to expect. But I soon found myself getting tossed around by crises, small and large. I realized that people and personality drive small firms, something somehow I had forgotten. And I've had to deal with a lack of systems and processes and resources that are givens in a larger company. All of this is to say, it hasn't been easy. Yet, when friends and family all come to me and sincerely ask, how's the new job? I'm struck with a pang of shame. Did I make the right move? How do I explain that this is hard? Shouldn't I be saying everything's great? As I thought about this at that time, I realized that scripture uh, tells stories of people from Adam to Jesus none of whom have a great job, and none of them have easy work. Jesus, our example in all things, showed us that living out our call doesn't lead to a carefree life. It leads to loving the world to death, literally. But thanks be to God that even in death, that's not the end of the story. God's abundance means that love extends beyond this life with such power, with such force, such overwhelming beauty that resurrection surely follows. This is what it means to embrace the abundance of, king, of the kingdom of God. Not that I get to drive a nice car or live in a big house. Not that everything's perfect. But that the kingdom of, God, of abundance is enough for me no matter what my trouble is. And permit me for just a moment to diverge from this main story today to address something I think that deeply affects us in our world. I think Rich sort of referred to it a little bit earlier. One thing that humans really have is keeping things in perspective, have a hard time doing, is keeping things in perspective. And right now, we live in an age where we're inundated with negative messages and scary news. I don't want to say that the media is at fault. Rather, it's actually a commercial fight for our attention and for our time and for our money that drives much of it. But really, it can be quite oppressive. And I believe it stokes this feeling of scarcity. When I am moved by another mass shooting or racial incident, yet cannot immediately respond, I feel like I'm not enough. My first impulse is to want to respond in compassion and to reach out and to do something. The next impulse is to turn away in fear and self-protection. This disempowers me. This makes me feel small in, face of the, in the face of the big mess. In an odd sort of way, I think this mechanism is what f tells these shooters that the way to live a full life is to go out in a blaze of violence. That they somehow think that this is expressing power as opposed to being powerless. 
Living a life of faith in this age requires us to look again at what it means to live in the kingdom in the face of these things. This is very hard work. The press of fear invoking scary, demoralizing, and troubling events and news that we face feels so much more imminent. How can we see a kingdom in the middle of all of this? The only answer I can imagine is to dig deeper into the community of believers that we've been given. We have to share our stories of the real things that we face. When we hear of how God has met us moment by moment, when we pray and turn our attention to God, then the reality of the kingdom begins to emerge. It's sad to me that this community time seems so rare. I get it. Kendrick and I feel more pressure for us to be traveling unavailable or otherwise consumed than, we, than 25 years ago. But to counter the darkness, we need to stare into the light. And small doses aren't enough. That leads to faith as alertness. At the end of this chapter uh, that was read, Jesus has this little story. Be dressed ready for service and keep your lamps burning like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself to serve and will have them recline at the table and will come and wait on them. It will be good for the servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the middle of the night or toward daybreak. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known the hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. So you must also be ready, because the Son of Man will come in an hour when you do not expect him. This is an odd little story. If you look, pull the lens back and look at all of Luke chapter 12, you see that they're sort of grouped together as ways of sort of like attitudes. Jesus talks about worry-free life, being on guard against deception, being free of fear, as we were just looking at it, abandoned to God's kingdom. And then he finally says, be alert. Okay. There's some oddity to this. It seems as if Luke is just placing it here because it's something Jesus said, and he's like, all right, we'll stick it here. It doesn't seem to flow from the other points. But if we pull back the lens in the Hebrews passage that was read this morning, we see that it might get to a point. At the end of the chapter, the author describes many nameless who live by faith, starting at verse 36. Some faced jeers and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning, and they were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, lived in caves and holes in the ground. They were condemned for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. Since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. This fearless treasures in heaven life, abandoned to God, looks forward to an abundance we don't yet have. It's our nature to look back and presume that the past predicts our future. But Jesus is saying, look forward. Look up. In your own 
look up, and in your own looking, maintain alertness. We know that alertness is the opposite of sleepiness. In a similar story to the bridesmaids in this story, in Matthew, Jesus describes three, a bunch of bi- ten bridesmaids, some of whom were wise and carried extra oil and some who weren't, and they all fell asleep, waiting for the, bl- the bridegroom late at night. The prepared bridesmaids wake and are able, with ready lamps lit, and, the, and they enter into the wedding banquet, whereas the unwise ones don't. Similarly, in the garden, James, Peter, and John had a hard time staying awake. Right at, even though they were right on the edge of the kingdom, breaking loose, they fall asleep over and over again. What's interesting to me is that the one time I can remember that Jesus falls asleep, he's actually in a boat on a lake in the middle of a storm. The disciples are freaking out because they're consumed with what's going on around them. Yet Jesus is able to sleep. Do you see the contrast here? We fall asleep and fail to maintain alertness when we think that all the worldly things are fine. Jesus, in the middle of the storm, is asleep because his attention is on the kingdom, not on what's going on around him. Jesus, is encur- Jesus encourages us not to be afraid in the face of the world's challenges. With our eyes in the kingdom, we can relax and even rest while the storms of this life surround us. That's the message of the first part of, of this passage. Yet we need to be ready and alert to when the kingdom is coming, when it's on the move, so that we can respond. Jesus says, you don't know when I will show up. Be ready for action. Because when I do... I need you to move. In the lectionary, we had uh, a reading from Hebrews 1, which is a very common passage. We know it well. Now faith is the confidence in what we hope for and the assurance of what we do not see. It's clear that then that the struggle is between what we see and what we don't. We think that what we see is more real, but that's not the truth. What we see is a world of scarcity, containing too many fears and too many troubles. What we see is that we're not enough to handle all these things. What we see is that we're alone and insignificant. But what Jesus declares, and what I long to embrace wholeheartedly, is that actually I live in a world overwhelmed with God's abundance I can love with abandon, knowing that my Father's delight is in me just being here. I can give beyond what I think I can because the kingdom is mine. God has given me this community of Jesus' followers to be his body to embrace me and encourage me. So I need to be alert alert to the work that God is doing, and I don't need to fear. And I can give this sermon even when I'm not feeling particularly faithful. Because as Paul wrote in Romans, neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, neither the present or the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love that is in Christ Jesus, 
our Lord. Amen.